Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project, by me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet a blessed who gave up everything to fix the church. Name, Alain de Solminiac. Life, 1593 to 1659. Status, blessed. Feast, December 31st. The great disappointment of Alain de Solminiac's life came on the day that he learned that he would not become a knight. Alain was the son of a noble family. But he was not the first son, which meant that he had some freedom in what kind of life he was going to pursue. And for years, Alain had known what he wanted to do. He wanted to join the Knights of Malta. The Knights of Malta, or the Knights Hospitaller, as they had once been known, were a crusader order that had been founded in the Holy Land. The organization was built around a core of celibate warriors, the Brother Knights. When the Christian kingdoms in the Holy Land fell, the Hospitallers had been pushed out in a fighting retreat over the Mediterranean until they had made their headquarters at Malta. In 1565, the Ottoman armies found them there. Malta only had about 6,000 defenders, of whom only 500 were knights of the order. The Turks had brought 40,000 men. Christendom held its breath. The knights won. Then, in 1571, the knights struck back from the forefront of a great Christian navy at the victory of Lepanto. Every boy in Christendom knew of their courage. Alain decided to adjust his life so that he could become one of them. He studied. He learned the social arts of dealing with his fellow nobles. He learned to fight and to ride. He went out on campaign with his father. And unlike many of the other boys his age, Alain tried to live a life that would be worthy of a knight of Malta. He didn't get drunk or gamble or start fights or chase girls. But it was not Alain's fate to become a knight. His fate lay elsewhere, in the corrupt, collapsing Catholic Church. Alain's uncle was an abbot of the Canons Regular of St. Augustine of Chancelade in west-central France. His uncle had been preparing another young man to take his place, but then grew unhappy with that choice, and his eye fell on Alain. The abbot spoke to Alain's father. Alain became designated as the next abbot. It probably didn't seem like a great deal to ask. The job was little more than an income stream. There was barely a monastery to speak of, beyond some crumbling buildings and three disappointed monks. If Alain wanted, he could have 
gotten involved in politics, or had a mistress, or done whatever he liked. Even the way he had gotten the job from his uncle underscored that point. A different young man might have taken advantage. But Atlantis Sonminiac looked at the decrepit little monastery and realized that it was a little piece of what was wrong in the church. He saw something that had once been great and could be great again if it could be reclaimed. That was what he was thinking when in 1613, Alain de Solminiac became a member of the Canons Regular of St. Augustine. The Church of the Middle Ages had fallen on hard times. Protestant reformers made legitimate complaints, and the bureaucracy was too slow and corrupted to reply. Good priests and bishops felt isolated in their parishes. But a few courageous men were emerging to try to fix what was wrong. In Milan, the Archbishop and future St. Charles Borromeo, who had also inherited his position because of nepotism, had set his mind to reform and shown that the problems could be reversed. The future saint, Francis de Salle, was fixing the Diocese of Geneva. Alain intended to join them, but before he could become the abbot, he had to become a priest. That meant traveling to Paris to study. It also meant planning the next steps. It helped that Francis de Salle was passing through Paris, and Alain had a chance to pick his brain. And so, Father Alain de Solminiac returned to the monastery to take up his role as abbot over just three monks. To the monk's surprise, the new abbot was serious. He was serious about their vocations and his. He was serious about the building, and they set about getting it repaired. He was serious about the duties the monks had once fulfilled in the outside community. He made them go out and help. The process of decay began to reverse. The monastery grew as young men came to join them. First it was only a few, then a dozen. Soon there were fifty monks in an active and thriving monastic community. Not everyone was happy about it. But the abbot found he didn't mind the conflict. As he would later tell a friend, I don't really know how it works, but the more I'm attacked, the more courage and resolve I find that I have. Around the monastery, Europe was slipping into the horror of the Thirty Years' War. The conflict started over religion and then became political, as wars do. France wasn't involved, yet, but it was coming, as the strategist Cardinal Richelieu controlled the direction of French policy. But as the moment came closer, something caught Richelieu's eye. He noticed the young noble abbot who had transformed his monastery. Such a man could be useful. The church had noticed too. In 1636, Richelieu saw to it that Alain de Solminiac became the Lord Bishop of Cahors. Alain agreed, reluctantly. He had one condition. He wanted to still remain a monk and keep control over the monastery at Chancelade. To be a bishop at the time was to become a powerful lord. Alain de Solminiac 
now had money, soldiers, a headquarters, and lands over which he ruled. It was a chance for him to enter politics. In fact, that is probably what Richelieu had expected him to do. There wasn't anything to do in Cahors, anyway. The diocese was a disaster. There were churches that hadn't seen the bishop in half a century. Many of the clergy were just using their jobs for income in churches that had long ago sold off anything of value. But Alain de Solminiac had realized that one life is often only enough time to pursue a single cause. His cause was fixing whatever he could of the church. That was why he wasn't going to give up control of Chancelade. The monastery was working again. But if it just went to some other noble, all his reforms would be lost. Alain understood the importance of having the right people in charge. Alain de Solminiac also understood that a bishop in monk's robes sent a very clear message about what the diocese of Caol was going to be like. People had grown used to fat and lazy bishops. They were in for a surprise. As soon as he got to his diocese, Alain de Solminiac started to crack the whip. There were going to be yearly meetings, and he was coming to inspect the diocese. He was going everywhere. There were 800 parishes in Cahors, and Alain visited them all, then did it again, and again. He figured out how to resupply the churches that had sold what they had. He disciplined priests who were abusing their place, and built seminaries to train up priests who would not. You couldn't accuse him of hypocrisy, because Alain was living the sparse life of a monk. The problems in Caol did not seem to have an end. There were the Protestants, of course. Someone in the diocese was circulating the heresy of Jansenism, a sort of quasi-Calvinist Catholicism that managed to make Catholics as dour as Calvinists. Alain moved fast to identify and condemn the books. Meanwhile, there was always work to do, and Alain believed in leading from the front. Shut-ins who had asked for a priest to come and hear their confessions were often shocked when it was the Lord Bishop who came to the door. By the end of his life, he has visited the 800 churches in his diocese at least nine times each. By now, France had entered the Thirty Years' War. There were those who thought the church should be a little more national. It was the moment that Cardinal Richelieu had been waiting for to bring Alain into his political schemes. But when Richelieu met him, Alain was unequivocal. He wasn't interested in a national church. He wasn't there for politics at all. Alain was still pursuing his single issue, fixing the church in France and bringing it back to what it had been. Richelieu and the others would have to find their help elsewhere. This approach made Alain de Solminiac many enemies. Interestingly enough, Richelieu was not one of them. It had been a long time since anyone had stood up to the cardinal. Richelieu's attitude was something like respect. As the Thirty Years' War came to its end, the pace of Alain's life was catching up with him. He collapsed on Christmas 1650, coughing blood. The doctor said he had days to live, but 
Somehow the bishop pulled himself up by sheer will and went on. He would continue his work for almost another decade. The end of the war brought another challenge. French towns and French nobles were feeling strong after the war, and they were bucking against royal authority in the roiling unrest that came to be called the Fronde. Some said this was the time for the church to intervene against the king. Again, Alain said no. He was there to fix things. As a bishop, he was lord in his own right. He kept Cahors out of the Fronde. It's this steady-minded determination to make things better that makes Alain de Solminiac an example of manliness. He realized that the great battle of his life would not be against the Ottoman Turks, but against the corruption in the body of the church. And he waged this battle methodically, relentlessly. And for us today, as the church faces crises of corruption, the strategic way in which Alain de Solminiac approached the issue is an inspiration, and perhaps a guide. For Alain de Solminiac, reform was like conquering some piece of land. It wasn't enough to roll in and declare that you are the man in charge. He knew that after the conquest came years of the really hard work of holding the line and enforcing the rules. Reform was slow. It took 22 years for Alain de Solminiac to find a suitable replacement for himself as abbot. It was worth the wait. The monastery at Chancelard would flourish until the French Revolution. The support for Alain de Solminiac came from the ordinary parishioners. He had built hospitals and helped the poor, and started seminaries that would train serious priests, getting the assistance of the future St. Vincent de Paul. As he pushed back against corruption, he was determined to prevent it from seeping back in. This made him enemies. The clergy in Cahors fought his reforms on and off for 20 years. His attempt to stamp out usury and to control the practice of dueling in his diocese made him enemies among the rich and the powerful. It was not surprising that after his death, it would be the ordinary people of Cahors who would start to find miracles with Alain's intercession. A little girl was healed at Christmas by the prayers of the late bishop. Ordinary people found help with fevers and broken limbs. One story that came up in his first biography perfectly captured Alain's personality. The story began with a worried priest being approached by a heavily armed man asking for help. The man told his story. He had been wronged, or so he felt, by another man. The injury had made him so angry that all his thoughts turned to revenge. He took to hanging around heavily armed, hoping to run into his enemy on the street. He was actually just working out the details of sneaking into his enemy's house to stab him when he ducked into a chapel where the tomb of Alain de Solminiac happened to be. As he glanced distractedly at the tomb, the man felt himself beginning to forgive. He was shocked. He wasn't sure whether it was a miracle exactly, 
but he knew he wasn't right with God, and he wanted to change that as soon as possible. There wasn't even time to disarm. It seemed in character for Alain de Solminiac, because he had always known how to use other people's hostility. Alain wasn't intimidated by criticism. Many people thought that he just ignored it, but his first biographer, who was also Alain's friend, knew otherwise. Alain de Solminiac wasn't impervious to all the criticism of his enemies. He read what people said about him. He considered carefully whether they were right. His was the loneliness of the man in charge. He had to decide on what was right and be confident that, one day, the people who resented his rules would understand why he had made them. In the meantime, Alain de Solminiac said, the constant criticism helped him not to be proud. As he had once told the man who would write his biography, if nothing else, the constant complaining was giving him a head start on purgatory. And here's wishing a very happy and blessed Christmas to you and yours from me.